This is Let Your Voice Be Heard, right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. And we are back. Good morning and welcome to Let Your Voice Be Heard. Where we praise the Lord. If you love your Lord, give me $700,000 right now and <laughs> I, I need will a pray jet. for you. <laughs> You're supposed to allude to it, Alyssa. You can't just jump straight to the jet. Right. It's good morning. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM. But I still The Voice one. of Harlem. We couldn't hold back. Like, this is not even a news roundup, but Stanley, who are you today? My name is Stanley Dollar, and if you send me $700, I will send you a blessed bottle of Hennessy that will solve all of your problems and cure your debt right now. Praise the Lord. In honor of Creflo Dollar, Dollar. My hero, he pimps out black people for money because Jesus. Yes. That's really sad. You know, I really want a, really I really want a yacht. You want a I yacht? think we're going to start a church. If you love me and Jesus, you should give Alyssa a yacht. Do you agree, yeah, Alyssa? Yeah, so crowdfund my yacht, and, you know, maybe you won't go to hell. <laughs> maybe. Right. Maybe. But if you're gay, I can't promise, though. give me $1,200, and I'll pray for you. Right. So, welcome, um, Stanley. Well, you did a little introduction already. Did you yes, want to tell yes, people yes. how they can follow you on yes, Twitter? Yes, you can Instagram? follow me on Turn It Up For The Lord. <laughs> So, turning up for the Lord, number four, L-O-R-D-T, at Twitter.com. And you can also follow me on Instagram at DarkSkinSwindle. And Selena looks like she wants to throw up or punch me at while throwing up. But <laughs> Creflo's a jerk. And, um, yes, I'm happy to be on the show today. Yes, yes, and I'm very happy as well. My name is Selena Hill. And on Instagram and Twitter, it's Miss Selena Hill. And I'm happy to announce that I'm officially back on Twitter. Um, Stanley, tw- Stanley witnessed that. I've been tweeting all week, so definitely tweet me there, guys. I'll probably, well. I'll probably respond you. now. <laughs> hey, look at I'm back. You've been having real conversations too. I picked the real ones. On. Yeah, I think I tweeted twice this week. Aside Alyssa, from retweets, you're next. those don't count. You're next. How can we raise you money if you're not tweeting? It's, I'm busy. I we can't need to have a Twitter ministry where we just tweet out like <laughs> quotes, like incorrect quotes in the Bible. Oh, I can't. And ask for money, like Creflo. Right. Um, Alyssa, please. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, my name is Alyssa Fuchs, and you can find me on Facebook on the fan page, uh, which is facebook.com slash politically preposterous, or on the Twitter account, poll preposterous, or you can just find me personally, because we know that's what you really want to do. <laughs> um, and it's at Alyssa Fuchs with an I, and Alyssa Fuchs on Facebook, but I'm pretty easily accessible, so. You sure are. Um, So, welcome again to Let Your Voice Be Heard. This is the show where we talk about politics, social issues, foreign policy, pop culture, and Creflo Dollar when he asks for <laughs> millions of dollars Poor to fund G6 his G6. Check. We need to play that song, G6. Um, G6? I, that, that song, G6? Maybe I have it already. We might. Okay, well, let's see if we can get that. Um, We have a great show lined up today. If you can't hear the enthusiasm in our voices, well, you're not paying attention. Um, We're starting off the show talking about the SAE racist frat video that everyone has been talking about, tweeting about, and it's been heavily reported in the news as well. I mean, this story, it's an ongoing saga at this point. It's like it started off with the video, then we found out there's other universities who have been accused of portraying and depicting racism. Um, We found out that the house mother herself was also on video using the N-word. I mean, and then then, then Trinidad James got involved and Waka Flocka got involved, and it's just spiraled out of control. wait, wait, wait. The trap god himself, the turn-up god, Waka Flocka Flame, who went from hood music to EMD hood music? Yes. Yo. Waka Flocka. We need to play some Waka Flocka. I'm sorry about that. I just got his new mixtape, and it is turned up. I was listening to it in the office. 
Really? Yeah. All right, if you say so. <laughs> Alyssa's like, what the heck is a waka flocka? No, I just I find it interesting <laughs> that like EMD and hip hop are kind of being mashed together now. Although that's not really anything new. Like, look at what happened when Little John did Shots. That was kind of like that, a huge, yeah, that was a great show. club hit. Great but, you know, it's it's more interesting because it lends itself to the larger discussion that we're having today about the intersection between hip-hop and t- people in these gener- today's generation and the music that influences millennials and the fine line, I'll call it, between what I guess is racist and what isn't racist. Uh, thank you. And I exactly. think that line can differ for different right. people. So it definitely subjective. can. And within um, that conversation, we, of course, we'll talk about the N-word. And then uh, later on in the show, we have a very special guest who will come on the show and talk to us about the Student Aid Bill of Rights. If you are drowning in college debt and student loans, then you may want to stick around and figure out why President Obama um, has basically set this declaration, the Student Aid Bill of Rights, and how it can help us in this, um, I think we're like in a trillion dollars worth of debt in student loans right now. I know how one much point debt three I trillion dollars. One point three. I mean, it's ridiculous. So President Obama, he is definitely taking action, and we'll talk more about that. I know we're very excited. And then later on in the show, we'll be talking about that infamous letter to Iran. I mean, the hashtag GOP wants war has been trending all weekend. Apparently, they do. Uh, as well as uh, the hashtag 47 traders. Yeah. Um, so we'll be, you know, if you have something to say about that, make sure you tweet at us, use those hashtags. Yeah, it's really sparked a lot of controversy and incredible amount of blowback that the GOP is now getting from it, which I think is good because, you know, when you do stupid things and there's no blowback, but then when Democrats don't really do anything stupid and then there's huge blowback over non-traversies, as I call them. So I'm glad that they're finally sort of getting the dirt thrown in the face from this. I would disagree with you because I think it's Obama's fault. He did two things wrong here. One, he tried to make peace. And that doesn't make money. He's black. He, yes. How did you know? How did you know? <laughs> How'd you figure that out, Alyssa? I just knew it was coming. We can't have black people. Like he's rapping in the Oval Office, and he, you know, he's just. I don't. His agree middle with that name kind of is Jaquan. No, you know, that's yes. like a really actual point because somebody, one of my co-admins on Politically Preposterous, said the other day about Republicans blaming the president. He's like, that's like you slapping your woman across the face and then saying it was her fault. That's, Victim blaming. Right. Exactly. That's exactly what it is, and maybe that's a little bit of a harsh analogy. Like but that's exactly what it is. It's, uh, you know, the president doing his job and then Republicans saying, well, you know, it's your fault because yeah. you were doing your job. Well, wait, according to Ferguson police, a black man can't hold a job for four years. So he's just hanging out at the White House now. He doesn't even work there anymore. Right. I'm sure we're not at Michelle Obama's high school reunion. This is, could be that exactly what's going on. Selena, you look so uncomfortable. Oh, I... Can we go back to Creflo Dollar jokes? <laughs> no, no, no. But, but what we can do is we can invite our listeners to chime into the conversation. You can call us up at 212 212- 650-6903. You can also tweet us at BeHerd underscore radio. Use the hashtag BeHerd as well. And we have a great show. We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're talking about that racist frat video right here on Let Your Voice Be Heard. And we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM on a Sunday morning. And what you just heard was a video clip of members of Sigma Alpha Epsilon fraternity at the University of Oklahoma clapping and boisterously singing. There will never be an N-word at SAE. You can hang him from a tree, but he will never sign with me. Oh, I thought that was a Tea Party caucus. (laughs) 
No, it could have been. Oh, my God. That explains why there weren't any old white men, just young, right. juicy white men. Right. You know, right. It's, cause, but you remember, these are the young white men that are eventually going to turn out to be those old, greasy white men. And also the white men who are going to shoot black people because they look like demons. Yes, it all makes sense now. It, so this he is was the Hulk. He was coming at me. Oh, my God. That's where Darren Wilson got trained in Oklahoma. It all makes sense now. Is it making sense? Is everything coming to life for you now, Stanley? It's my fault because I'm black. Oh, my God. I mean, right. pretty, I pretty much. Um, okay, so that video was recorded earlier. Earlier this month, apparently the students were celebrating their Founders Day and they were on a bus on the way to celebrate at a party. And, you know, all these white people were singing and and clapping along. And then you see this one young white man, about 19, just going at it and leading the chant. So someone on the bus filmed it and then leaked it. As a result, it led to the suspension of two fraternity members and the, I mean, excuse me, of the fraternity itself at the campus and then the expulsion of two members, the ones that could actually be seen on the video. Mm-hmm. I guess no one else, I guess everyone else went to hide behind their hoods. They didn't want to speak up and say they were on the bus. <laughs> um Good one, Selena. Because so, <laughs> KKK. Right, it's because KKK. So eventually, two of the members seen um, in the video, they apologized. But one of them said, and I'm turning my phone off now so you don't hear my tweets. Um, one of them said that, and I quote, like, alcohol may have been a contributing factor in why he led the racist chant. Alcohol. So... Here's my oh, thing. Oh, yeah, just blame it on the alcohol. Wait, I drink, we we got to play that song. I drink a lot of alcohol. I'm possibly drunk now. Okay. Never has booze made me racist. Never. But if it can, oh, my God. I mean, it would be a phenomenon if booze can make you uh, become a racist, So right? I can turn into a racist at brunch at any moment. After my third <laughs> mimosa, Alyssa, let's go to brunch after this. Yeah, sounds So good. I can hear Stanley make racist jokes. Yes. Probably not going to happen because that never happens, right? So following the video... Hip-hop artist Waka Flocka Flame. Look, my no hands. Oh, yeah. He sings that song. Um, and he has the dreadlocks. And sometimes he sounds like Cookie Monster because he, like, yeah. uh, like, he sounds like that. One of my favorite lines from Waka Flocka was, what? when my little brother died, I said, F school. I know. His that... brother didn't die in school. His brother died of cancer. So I don't understand how that rhyme well, makes sense. Well, he explained it one time. He was saying that he the trauma caused him to not want to focus in school. Oh, okay. Yeah. And he also wants to go to college to study geology. Did he say that? Yes. Well, hey, I can't justify that. So just so Waka Flocka Flame, he canceled an upcoming performance at the University of Oklahoma in light of the video. And then he also put out a statement on uh, Instagram saying racism is something I will not tolerate. Then, thank you for those ad libs. A Reddit posting suggests that the song was also being sung, sung at SEE's. University of Texas chapter at least two months ago that came out and then um, in addition to that um, like I mentioned before we went on break the house mother who's this elderly elderly white woman she was caught captured on video using the n-word seven times while singing a Trinidad James song the one where he talks about popping molly and sweating Woo! And just for the record, he only says the N-word three times in a chorus, so she just went in. <laughs> she was just like, I'm going to add that the extra four she real needed, quick. She needed four more N-words. She white, just wanted that. White people don't even have rhythm in singing because she was so offbeat. It didn't even make sense. I think she was tipsy or drunk or something. But I'm not blaming. You can't blame it on alcohol. Tips you off the black. Yeah. She was, I don't know. She was something. So, um. In more ways than one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, obviously, this. this, I hope not. <laughs> obviously, this controversial video has sparked so many discussions and it has 
further um, propel the, the national discourse on race relations even more. Um, it's been raising a number of questions about racism in today's era among millennials, among white people, hip hop itself, and the N word. And guess what? We're going to talk about all of that right here, right now, and let your voice be heard, as well as hip hop's role in either perpetuating or combating racism in the millennial era. But, I... we, but we will not be saying the N word. And if you call in to give us a comment, we appreciate your comments, but you will not be saying the N word either on this program at any time. Here is what you two guys don't understand, which Bill O'Reilly has helped me to see. Black people and rap music cause white people to be racist because when Kanye West made the song New Slaves on the Plantation in 1722, that's when white people said we should continue having slaves because rap music caused slavery. Make sense? Stanley Stanley actually makes a really good point. The fact, well, I'm going to, before I even go there, let me give some background information. So according to Rush Limbaugh, if Kanye West made a song about the racist SAE chant, Why would he? the song would have been a hit. It might have been, actually. <laughs> no, 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 but you know, you it's funny been, because... You were in the club, so like, oh, no N-words in SAE. Well, he, did, he has a line in one of his new songs where he says, um, all up in the house, like um, a house N-word. Yeah, I'm like I'm I'm all up in that mother loving house like I'm a house. But end. we all know Kanye is a buffoon and he stopped being great after college. Um, what is it? Late registration? Not late registration. Um, graduation. That right. Was, that well, was the last time he was coherent. So I mean, that's <laughs> diamonds are forever. It's the last time he was coherent, yes. as far as I'm when concerned. When he was advocating for LGBT rights, and I was like, whoa, no rapper has ever done this. No, right. But this raises the bigger picture, the bigger question about the N-word in general, and when it comes to hip hop, and it, you know, it goes back to one of those things where we always have a conversation about, and this doesn't just happen with the N-word, because it can happen with words in the gay community as mm-hmm. well, which is. Why is it okay for you to say it and not a white person to say it? Is it okay for a gay person to say the F word or mm-hmm. the D word, um, but not a straight person to say it? But we always have these double standards about who's allowed to say certain things. As president of the Black Republicans, I hate Barack J. Kwan Obama <laughs> Club. I will answer that question for you. If you are black, say the N word as much as you want. You earn that crap. I don't necessarily agree with saying the N word. I try to keep it out of my vocabulary. But sometimes you just need to drop a strong N to let somebody know what it is, black folk. But if you are white, don't ever say that word. Don't sing it to rap lyrics. Don't mouth it because I will street fight or uppercut you. And if we're cool with my friends, you say it around my other black friends, I have no other option but to help them jump you. Well, here's the thing. Stanley makes a good point, and Alyssa raises a good question. Trinidad James, however, disagrees. So after he heard... Because he doesn't uh, know how to read, and he's poor. We don't know that. Yes, we do. After, he said it on Twitter. He said, I don't know how to read, and I'm poor, no, Stanley. No, he said, I'm, I, I'm poor. Oh, okay. <laughs> um. So... Right, because how would he be on Twitter if he can't read? Um, Have you seen people's tweets, Lena? That's true. So he actually, after watching a house mother say the N-word seven times to his song, he came out on CNN and he said that he Wait. wasn't necessarily offended. So that James is on CNN? Yeah, he did an interview. He must really need money. They must have paid him like a bag of weed or something. I don't know. <laughs> but he, he came on and he said no, that. that's MSNBC. That's how you can get that. So he said he wasn't necessarily offended and that hip hop is hypocritical and that, you know, he was like, I made the song, I wrote the song. And, you know, when it comes to hip hop, you have certain people who advocate for um, black rights and progression within the black culture and black community. But then we constantly see the perpetuation of black stereotypes and they use the N word. So I'm thinking that's the hypocrisy he was making note of. Trinidad James is uh, like, a confirmation he's he is a stereotype a walking stereotype 
He like he's everything he's saying that he dislikes about the black community. And the black community is very nuanced. And by the way, if you want to argue with me, the number is two one two six five zero six nine zero three. Yes, I do believe that if you make a song that other people are gonna connect with, there's only it's only a matter of time before they sing the lyrics in the song. And it may mean nothing to them when they say the N word. But you know what? We have over four hundred years of history of why you should not be using the N word. And it might be a little inconvenient for you, but you know what? Well, last time white people was calling pe- black people the N word, they were hosing them or hanging them or hitting them with whips or, or sticking them what dogs to do. on them, which exactly. apparently they're still doing. It's Ferguson, Staten yeah. Island. Um, you know, it, it reminds me so much when this all came out, and I, you know, obviously the video aside, but just the deeper stuff about it, it reminded me of that scene at the very end of Dear White People, where she, the black girl, throws the hip hop party with all the white people and tells them, like, it's okay today, you can dress up, you know, wear your bl- best hip hop gear, and they all show up to these parties in what we'll call like traditional hip hop style clothing, baggy pants, big shirts, big chains. Some of them are wearing grills and they're emulating black hip hop culture. And there's a huge kind of fight that breaks out. On one hand, you have a group of students in that movie that feel that that's very racist, what's being perpetuated at that party. And on the other hand, the girl who's hosting the party and several other people say, no, like, you know, this is hip hop culture. Like, you know, they're this is like it's fun. It's not racist. We're we're you know let them have their night to come out and. I would disagree with you because I don't think that she was okay well, with it. It's not with oh, you. Oh, okay. You, yeah, the dark the dark skin character talking about. She wasn't okay with. You could tell she was very upset by it because there's a very thin line between like embracing a culture and and making fun of it, and that line is like very. It's hard to tell. But what she said was pretty much, yo, they're going to do this no matter what, and they hate us, but I'm going to make this money, and I'm with her. Right. I'm going to exploit the crap out of you racist white folks. Well, Give me your money. That's really the question that I think we're here to answer, which is where is that line? You know, I love right. hip-hop music, you know, and, and I've, I like hip-hop culture. And at what point does my love of hip-hop culture and my love of hip-hop music cross the line from, you know, just average into – sort of being sort of racist well well here's a hard question here's my question for you Alyssa, as a white woman when you're listening to hip-hop do you say the n-word no and why is that just because i mean well i guess i can't speak for everybody just because i just don't think it's the right thing to do i mean i hear the n-word when i'm listening to the song even if i'm mouthing the song as stanley said i'm you know yeah exactly exactly want to stop um (laughs) she ain't mess what's the gold digger song so you don't say it even while singing like the no. songs where the N word is so prominent. No, I mean the, I know the word is there. I'm not. No, I don't sing it. I just don't think it's appropriate uh, for the reasons that Stanley points out. We have 200 years of racism in this country, and I just you know listen. Like I said, if if that's part of the hip hop culture, I'm okay with that. And you know you feel comfortable using the words in your music, or black people feel comfortable using that word in their music. That's their choice. Um, I don't feel comfortable singing it. But uh, you have to remember there are other rappers that don't use the n-word ever like common yeah that's that's very true and speaking of hip-hop i wanted to bring in um some of the response that was said on msnbc which we all know is left-leaning but i don't know the direction they're going in now on morning joe um the i'm about to say the racist the host actually you had it right the first time well he's the host, a conservative racist. well what he said was hip if you if you listen to the lyrics um him and billy crystal they were talking about how 
more than likely the white people on in the frat i mean in the video that were saying the um the racist chant they heard that word and they heard racism through hip-hop because if you look at hip-hop the lyrics are misogynistic they're hateful they're violent and more than likely that's where they learned it and then mika said who's the one the female host on she said if you look at every single song i guess I guess you call these that he's written, speaking of Waka Flocka, it's a bunch of garbage. It's full of N-words. It's full of N-words. It's wrong. And we shouldn't be disgusted with the fraternity. We, he should be disgusted with himself. So that was her response to Waka Flocka's response to the video. couple things. Who created the N-word? It wasn't Waka Flocka, and it was not hip-hop. It was probably some white guy with a white name like Heath who created the <laughs> N-word, right? Heath? And, and how long were they calling black folks the N-word? centuries yes and how often did they educate people of color not that often so then when people of color started learning english and they were using broken english and slang because they didn't know how to read and didn't understand grammar and then all of a sudden the n-word got incorporated into it because they were always calling being called the n-word how is it therefore they've had 200 plus years of being indoctrinated into this it doesn't make sense i mean stanley stanley makes a great point i understand that we have a caller on the line who would like to let her voice be heard good morning Hi. Hey, Miss Deborah. Hey. Yeah. You know what? When people talk about rap music and they talk about the language and, you know, how some of the music is really terrible, you don't want to really deal with it. Because if you did, you would attack corporate America. Because the people who really have good rap music, they don't want them on the radio and they won't put them on the radio. Because if you have a message that's positive and uplifting, and you, you know they don't want that, and I've heard I've heard people say that who are musicians. So you know, as long as you stay in the toilet, they're fine with it. Other than that, they don't want it. So corporate America is the one that you hit. Thank you for that response, Ms. Deborah. Guys, if you want to chime in, the number is two one two six five zero six nine zero eight. Um. Zero three. It's been three years. It's been three years. Six nine zero three. So I feel what you're saying, Ms. Deborah, because like on Thursday I was listening to Lupe Fiasco's album and he was talking about be positive and love yourself, but I was like nah, so I put on Juicy J. (laughs) (laughs) Like it's and I know Juicy J is garbage and I know Waka Flocka Flame and My Ghost and all them is garbage, but sometimes you just want to turn up and I want to hear Trap Queen. I don't want to hear I know I can. Well, there was this documentary that came out probably almost a decade ago. Um, I think it was Beyond the Beats and it was really good. And what the the filmmaker did was he spoke to up and coming rappers in Miami and he asked them to spit some bars and then they did. And then he was like, well, do you have any lyrics about your upbringing, your culture? And they had these really insightful intellectual lyrics and he asked them, why didn't you go with that first? And they simply said, I won't get signed. And I mean, there is the, the argument of supply and demand but then again let's look at it who are who buys hip-hop the most and it's white people so it's kind of like why do consumers and white people and and why do we want to see black people in these stereotypical images just speaking garbage and jitterous even gibberish even though they can have a degree when you look at Two chains. Two chains. Yeah. He has a four-year degree. But, I mean, you hear what he says. He does not sound like that. Because he doesn't... it's about what sells. He that, that's Miss Deborah's point. I mean, look at... We're going to play a song... Uh, during this segment where it's an Eminem song and in the song he has a lyric which you'll hear where he talks about how when 
Dr. J signed him, essentially, they they switch, they flip-flopped fans. Like, for every black fan that Eminem got was a white fan that Dr. Dre got. So at the same time, we have to remember that hip-hop is a business, and it's about what sells, and it's about who's buying it, and who has the money to buy it also. So there's also this underlying issue of class that comes into play when it comes to hip-hop, because, as you just pointed out, who's buying the hip-hop? Yeah. Um. We have a call online who I want to get to, but I want to mention a good friend of ours who used to be on the show. And it's not Dustin. Oh, I'm like, Dustin? Dustin's, you know, Dustin's a brother. But, um, well, Mike, he loves Waka Flocka Flame because it's entertaining. Right. And, like, I don't think there's, like, a, I don't know, if, I don't think it's racist, but I do think it's an element of, like, I can't believe somebody would say something so ridiculous. He goes to his concerts. He buys his albums because he thinks it's hilarious. And, like, a lot of people listen to it for that reason. But anyways, guys, we thank do, you for that. That was insightful. Yes, we do have a call on our line right now, and it's brother Omar from the Big Mango, and we love having him call in. So, brother Omar, let your voice be heard. Okay, uh, thank you, and, and thank you for your panel. Listen, before the hip hop generation came on the scene, uh, I'm a product of the '60s, and I know one of the most progressive brothers, and he used to be a guest on uh, your your radio station many, many times. And Brother Leroy had a show, Dick Gregory, and Dick Gregory came out in the early '60s with the book "Nigger." That was the name of the book, "Nigger." And the reason why he said he's using that, he says, "Cause you call me that anyway." So I'm just making light of it, okay? And I uh, I used to be in the retail business, and I used to deal with this uh, uh, Jewish brother, and uh, his name was Jaime. And uh, I remember when I went into the store, I was with my sister, and I just said, how are you, brother Jaime? And uh, everyone looked at me, and I said, well, that's his name. And he didn't take any offense to it. I do, however, take the offense to the N-word the way it's being used now, and like I tell my grandson. And the reason why is because I'm a product of the civil rights, human rights struggle. And that was the last word that our forefathers, our ancestors heard before they were being lynched. And any time you use derogatory terms, I don't care if you're Italian or, I mean, whatever, whatever your nationality, it degrades you. And that's how they did it in Vietnam. When they went to Vietnam, they degraded the people. They called them gooks and all this other foolishness. So it made them easy for them to be killed. And that's what Hitler did. Uh, when he uh, killed close to 7 million Jews and gypsies and also black people, they degrade you. So I think it's very degrading. And when you mention this hip-hop artist, I'm going to use uh, Barack Obama's term. He said, this man is a jackass. The guy that you're talking about, Wes, he said he is nothing short of being a jackass. Okay. Thank you so much for that insightful comment, Brother Omar. Let me just remind everyone, please do not actually say the N-word for FCC purposes here in our show or use any profanity while um, giving comments. But we we do accept your calls. If you want to call in, the number is 212-650-6903. Just no profanity. Um, I know we're going to go on a quick break, but I did want to just add on to hip-hop. Rap, hip-hop, it cannot be used as a scapegoat. The thing is, rap has not been here as long as the N-word, as long as racism. Racism is embedded in American fabric, and we need to stop making excuses for racist people. I don't care how many times they hear the N-word in Trinidad James' song. I think you say closing statement too early because we're coming back. Oh, that's not my closing statement. We're going to come right back and let your voice be heard. Okay, boo-boo. Pass it, Hennessy. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we are back. A little bit of just like this. (laughs) 
That was White America by Eminem. I mean, talk about Sign of the Times. That song, when that come out? How many years ago? 2004. Wow. No, no, I'm lying. 2001. So that's over a decade ago. 2002. Crap, wow. Well, over a decade ago. This is why black people bangs with Eminem, because he acknowledges his white privilege. Thank you. The the Slim Shady LP, which was his first album, came out, I think I was in seventh grade. Yo, you're right. Because I had it on CD, and I had to hide the CD from my parents because it had parent advisory stickers on it. Oh, good thing my dad didn't care about my life. So I remember... I like had it like in a box, in another box, like below some Beanie Babies. Oh wow! You know, my dad was such like a neglectful dad. I was blasting in the house, and he would, he's like, "Why don't you? Why why you never listen to music in the house?" Meanwhile, Eminem was like, "B, I'm gonna kill you. You don't want to f with me." And he's like, "I'm gonna go to work now. See you later." Thank you for that sad, depressing That's not story, depressing. No, Stanley. Kind of funny. Um, we're back on "Let Your Voice Be Heard." I wanted to. Um, talk about some of the the tweets we're getting what on Twitter. Some really about? good commentary, some really good feedback. We're talking about the racist frat video that Sigma Sigma Alpha Epsilon um wh- that was re- um, released with um, Incorporated. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I don't know if we can say it like can, that. Can I say a funny yes. fact about SAE? They were founded with members who had worked in the Confederate Army. Right. Yeah, it was based on people who had supported the Confederacy and fought in the war. The frat was started by all racist founders. No, they're definitely very proud of that. One of the frat members actually had a Confederate flag in his dorm room. So, like, they definitely stood on pride with the the fact that they were founded in the antebellum South. Well, that's a a regular thing in the South. Like, Confederate flags, black people have Confederate flags, too. But the thing is, you can't separate the the racism and the history behind that flag from, like... Tell us in Alabama, because they go to... I'm telling you, it's it's like a normal thing. Yeah, Confederate flag. Yeah, that's a high point of contention all the time about whether or not the Confederate flag is racist or whether or not it's a right. representation of the South and states' rights. And that's a, that's a long-standing debate that we could have an entire show on. Speaking of debates, so um, Jerosalind Diva 08 tweeted us that I don't, and I quote, I don't mind anyone saying the N-word when it ends with an A because it's become a social term, but the N-word that ends with an E-R Oh, no. And then we have PR to politics tweeted us saying, no, I do not think it is okay, And I do not think African-Americans should use it towards each other concerning the N word. The question was before we went to break, should the N word be abolished altogether? And, you know, you know, hip hop has played a huge role in perpetuating and saying the N word and making it a very casual term in the millennial generation and in the hip hop generation. But then again, when we have house mother of SAE saying it, you know, everyone's up in arms. So that was a yeah, little point of contention right there. to be up in arms because she's an old white woman saying the N-word. Yes, <laughs> I don't care. If Jaquan say it, if Felipe say it, I don't care. The minute Molly says it, I have a problem. When Noah says it, I have a problem. You do not have a right to use that word. Okay. Well, that's a very good point. I personally don't use the N-word at all. Um, I don't think it's a term that's endearing. I think when I hear it, I don't necessarily think of um, something positive. I hear, you know, like like our, our last caller just said, this was the last word that people heard when they were being lynched. Yeah. I mean, the history is deep-seated and it's deep-rooted and it's extremely hurtful and painful. And I just don't think, it, it doesn't make me feel good as a person and I don't use it. It's yeah. like mutilation. Like It's like, why would you use a word like so vitriolic? But people use it. So you know what? Then they say it takes away the power from I, it. I don't agree, but Neither. like I'm, I'm, I don't think that we're going to have a way we can get people to stop saying it. So I'm what? not going to say it, and it is what it is, I guess. I think you have two distinct d- uh, different camps when it comes to the N-word. Obviously, the N-word that ends with the A, not the N-word that ends with an E-R, because I think that there's a – cross the board, people are not down to hear the one that ends in the latter and not the former, but – 
speaking of the former, I think there's two distinct camps. You have those people who find it to be empowering, as Stanley just mentioned, and almost as if we're taking it back because of the fact that it was the word that was used during lynching. And then you have a whole other group of people, which I think you'd probably fall into, Selena, that just finds it offensive and just doesn't think it should be used any at all. And then there's a whole other thing with hip-hop, which is, as I pointed out before, but I'll mention again, is it's become so innate in hip-hop, but it doesn't have to be. There are hip-hop artists that are black that don't use the n-word now obviously there are white hip-hop artists that don't use the n-word for the obvious reason that they're white and so it would be inappropriate for them if if eminem said the n-word he would never have blown up to where he is now i don't think i think that would have been to his detriment but there are many many black hip-hop artists that don't use it and have no need to use it look at black rapper iggy azalea who <laughs> she doesn't use it oh wait she's white isn't she yeah she just makes believe she's a black person to sell records okay well that's a different conversation but that that goes back to is any time a white person does hip-hop is that cultural appropriation no because i wouldn't call eminem a cultural appropriator or Macklemore because a eminem has grew up in a culture you could tell he loves the culture he's authentic he's from detroit eight mile he grew up there Macklemore raps from his own purview Iggy Azalea is from Australia, and when she's not rapping, she sounds like an Australian woman, and when she starts rapping, she sounds like a black woman from East Harlem. Out right. Of well, no, she sounds like a southern black woman so from you Atlanta. Think it's more along the lines of like she's putting on an act, of whereas course. Eminem and Macklemore are just like doing their thing that they haven't appropriated as much as they just feel strongly about hip hop culture. Yes. And you know why? They acknowledge their privilege on more than one occasion. Right. Both Eminem and Macklemore have acknowledged the fact that they're white, and that's why they're more mainstream. Um, compared to other rappers who are just as talented but don't get the recognition, Iggy Azalea is like on a defense when someone when someone calls her out about her black accent. So I don't get that. Right. No, I understand. I'm not here for her white tears. You know, just to go back a second, give you some statistics uh, about the fraternities in general. But then, you know, before we switch gears to talk more about Greek life, um, the SAE obviously is a big frat. They have fraternity houses at many, many different schools. And um, there's another story that's coming out of a different SAE uh chapter, I would call it, from George Mason University, where apparently somebody said that uh, they allowed one black person in because he sounded white when he spoke. Um, Or actually, they said he sounded like he knew English, meaning... Uh, yeah. Um, and that he's and then they went on to say that most minority pledges were based on whether they were using African-American vernacular English versus, quote unquote, white sounding English. So to me, there's nothing more racist than that. Of course, the president, the current president of the chapter at George Mason University has said at no point do we ever deny admission to anyone on the basis of race. And we have absolutely zero, zero tolerance Except for those black guys. But if you look at the statistics out of 47 active members in the this chapter, only four African-American, four Indian-American, and three are Middle Eastern, and one is Hispanic, well, and the rest are white. Why would someone want to join one of these frats that was founded in the 17 and 1800s, where you know it is an 80% chance it was founded by some racist, where you could join Alpha Phi Alpha, or Alpha Kappa Alpha, or Phi Beta Sigma, or one of the other great historically black fraternities, or join right. Lambda Upsilon Lambda, or one of these historically multicultural organizations where people look like you and share your experiences. Mm-hmm. If I'm going to pledge, I'm going to pledge for people who can share my experiences and who won't call me the n-word when we get into an argument well let me ask you when with the traditionally black fraternities they do allow white members to pledge yeah, yeah they do do yeah. white members pledge to yeah, traditionally I know, black of, I know this white yeah. capital who could bust a shimmy that will change your world yeah and I've, seen, he doing it. I think I, I've seen Asian capitals so as well. do you think that the historically black fraternities are actually like, more inclusive more inclusive 
Can, can I jump in for Yeah, sure. Because so, you are a Greek. Yeah. So you know why the historically black organization started? Because white folks wouldn't let them join the other ones. They wouldn't let them join. And if you were a black person and you were like coalescing with more than two black people, it was considered a riot. So you can get arrested. So the only way you can get past that was to make a study group. Right. And that's how that's what that became. And it just grew from that. It was problematic historically, and it's still problematic. Just to add on to Alyssa's statistics, there's also accusations coming from the University of Washington in Seattle, where students of the Black Student Union said that while they were protesting during a Black Lives Matter protest, that they were called apes and other derogatory names by members of SAE. They were marching, uh, um, supposedly they were marching by their frat house and all of a sudden they were, you know, they started throwing these racial slurs at them, telling them that they're, they're just causing issues and they're just causing problems and that, and, and, and they use those type of names. Um, apparently the students did not respond. They just kept in moving because they said that the protests and their, and the purpose behind it was more important than to succumb, um, succumb um, sorry. That's what she said. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> if you want to call in, guys, the number is 212-650-690. Right. And I, no, I agree with them. I agree that I don't think that they necessarily should have stopped. But once that video came out, that's when they were like, you know what? We're going to speak up about this because it's not just something that's going on in that one location in Oklahoma. This is going on in Texas. This is going on in Washington. And it seems like it's reflective of a bigger problem, which happens to be Greek culture itself, or at least white Greeks. And I kind of want to talk about that because from my experience, a lot of millennials, people of our age, and then in this generation, do not necessarily, aren't necessarily racist or think very racist. They're more inclusive of everyone, and we have different perspectives and we're more tolerant. So is it Greek culture that that's perpetuating racism now? I don't think so. I think that it's, you know, despite the fact that I agree with you that our generation I find to be more tolerant, yeah. I think there's sort of been an under, not an understanding, but there's sort of been a shift where racism has become it still exists. It's just not as overt anymore. It's kind of like covert racism that happens in the back rooms on school buses when people, you know, people are not supposed to be filming and leaking the things but instead of people walking around and somebody walking up to you on the street and stanley and saying like hey m word this and you know like i don't like you for this reason like now you have it it's gone to the the back room the boardroom the bus and then when it leaks when it leaks out and then we're supposed to be surprised about it but i don't really think we should be surprised about it because when we look at the institutionalized racism throughout our systems in america for example our criminal justice system it should come as no shock to us that the racism exists in, amongst everybody or amongst a lot of people so why do people treat racism like the gay son where you know that they're gay but you just make believe nothing's happening and you don't discuss it at all that's how they treat racism they won't say racist things they won't discuss it but they still hold a lot of, not every white not every white person but a lot of people a lot people, of white racist people a lot people. of white people still hold some very problematic ideologies about people of color but since they're not calling you the n word and boycotting from you to vote they don't think they're racist so then when these kids who already had these skewed perceptions of black people who never discuss race just go out with their friends and start saying racist things because they don't value people of color as human it's not a surprise to me. Billy can't wait to drop the N-bomb on me. 
You know, the, it, I had sent you guys um, earlier in the week a cartoon, which Selena wrote me back saying she had already seen. But it speaks to this point that you just brought up, Stanley, about how, like, there's sort of racism innate in almost a lot of things that sometimes do, you don't even realize it because it just scratches the surface. For example, this cartoon that I sent, the first box shows a white woman holding a baby. The second box shows a black woman holding a baby. In the first box, the one woman is asking, is that your little brother? In the second box, the woman is asking, oh, is that your son? Um, and then it, it repeats similarly. On one side is all white girls in the boxes, and on the other side is all gra- black girls in the boxes. And on one of these things, right. like on the white girl, it says, what's your major? On the black girl one, it says, are you the first person in your family right. to go to college? It's just yeah. these racist assumptions that a lot of white people hold towards people of color, and I do understand we have... A call on the air. So, Barry, we want you to let your voice be heard because you have been holding for quite some time. What's going on? What's going on, man? We could be on this subject forever, but I want to get to a couple of points. Number one, the history from the word that came from Negro to Negra was the word that was being used from Niger in, in, in Africa. That's one. And the word wasn't Africa. It was Ethiopia before it became Africa. The second thing of it is, if you call a white person a European, would you be wrong? Two, where's the history behind a lot of the stuff that we talk about? Yes, we talk about the subject. We know what's wrong. They know what's wrong. But the problem of it is they don't want to face it. They want to beat around the bush. They want to play games. We as people, as ourselves, we also do it to ourselves. So now it doesn't give other people the right to call us. But when we call ourselves that, then we got a problem. So we need to stop flim-flamming and be real straight up with this. That's all I had to say. Thank you so much, Barry, for calling in and letting your voice be heard. Again, if you're listening and would like to chime in the conversation, the number is 212-650-6903. Or you can tweet us at BeHeard underscore radio. What I wanted to say when we're talking about this new form of racism, I cannot tell you how many times, and because, you know, I'm a community organizer and I work on social justice issues, I believe it or not, I, for a long time in my career, I worked with more white people than black people on issues that affect black people. And I would have white people come up to me and go, oh my God, you are so articulate. Yep. Or, you know what I love? about you you're not like everyone else stanley you are so smart and you don't get offended you don't let racism hold you down i've heard things that like is that. so racist i've gone to job interviews and they go oh you're stanley i was expecting someone else and <gasps> they've said that mm-hmm. out loud i've had someone say to me you are the happiest black guy i've ever met okay yes. now it's getting ridiculous stanley no but this is this is what it is and we're talking about these microaggressions and we're talking like you know or people will say to me well I don't take much offense to this. Like, I've had people say to me, Stanley, you're not black. Come on, really. You're not really black. You, you like to read books. You have goals. But my black friends have said this to me, so I'm not, I'm not too surprised. But when you t- when there's, like, such a deeply ingrained perception of people of color that they are brute, they are aggressive, they are overly sexualized, right. they are vulgar, and then you're not, in, you're not like, addressing these issues, what do you expect to happen? Very good point. And, Stanley, thank you for sharing so many of those personal experiences. I do understand we have to wrap it up, but I wanted to throw this out really quickly. And now that Alyssa's back, our legal correspondent, um, I wanted to throw out the fact that a lot of people have been up in arms about the frat video on the left and the right. And the reason why there's the reason why is that they're saying that even though what they said was repulsive and horrendous, it still is protected under 
free speech and that they have the constitutional right to say anything they want and that they should not have been expelled. So another issue that's coming about is the issue of free speech and government censorship. Now we know the president of the University of Oklahoma took immediate action and those two members were expelled within days after this video leaked. However, I mean, I wanted to get Alyssa's take on this because you are a constitutional scholar and you are our legal correspondent. Where do you side on this? Because you're always advocating for free well, speech. It's not a matter of where I side. I'll just tell you what the law is. Um, you know, first off, I just wanted to correct you. The First Amendment doesn't give you the right to say anything you want. I mean, there are certain categories of speech that are excluded, like obscenity, threat, you know, credible threats, um, or, you know, yelling about, say, a fire in the theater when there's no such fire. Things, speech that creates um, people to run and scream and like do crazy things thinking that there's an emergency. Those things are not protected, but yeah, I mean, the people who have argued, uh, I disagree. I should start by saying I totally disagree with the speech that was said on that bus. Uh, however, yet from a First Amendment perspective, those people who have said that this is protected speech are correct. Um, from, you know, not from my personal feelings about what was said explicitly, just from a legal perspective, uh, racist speech is constitutional. There's nothing unconstitutional about wanting to say things that are racist. Now, obviously, there are still consequences to the actions of the speech you said. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not protected. Now, the issue of their suspension is where it gets really interesting because if they went to a private school, uh, a completely private school that had no govern that was not involved with the government at all, then the First Amendment wouldn't apply because their school is not a state actor. Their school does not represent the government. And what a lot of people forget about the First Amendment, it is only applies when the government tries to censor your speech, not when a private company or a private university starts to, you know, uh, punish you for certain speech. But what makes this interesting is the University of Oklahoma is a public university. It's partially funded by the state, which means it's partially a government entity. And therefore, when the university takes actions to say, we may suspend you, because of the fact that that action is the government now through a, the, as a public university stepping in and trying to censor their speech. Um, so that's going to be, I don't know a good answer to that. It's going to be interesting how right. it plays out when it gets to court because I know the university may argue that even if they're a public entity, they have a school code and that they violated the school code and that they're not being suspended for their speech. They're, you know, per se under the First Amendment, but they're being suspended because they violated a, a university policy. Mm. How that's actually going to play out, I don't know. It may turn out that that policy violates the First Amendment because, like I said, you may not like it, I may not like it, and I may not like what they had to say, but they have a First Amendment right to say racist things. And hate black right. people. And, That's and, like and, all the rights for white people, which you can do whatever I mean, you want to do. And, and, and that works both face, ways, you know? You, can... you have a First <laughs> Amendment right to hate, not like white people. And well, to say, you know, I, I love I mean, everybody. I don't have a problem with anybody. Yeah, but I mean, the only the only thing that I found problematic is the fact that if when you have hate speech and you have this protection around it, then it puts the onus on those targeted and those victims victims to either speak out to and defend their freedom and defend their rights or to internalize that trauma. So I think that that's the one thing that I don't necessarily agree with um, when it comes to the First Amendment. No, but, I think Liz is right, though. It's the First Amendment right. Yeah, I but, mean, I, but I, how, well, what does that do to the victims, right? I, it, I, the, the same thing happens with rape. Like, people have the right to make these rape jokes and to say things. Even, you know, the University of Dartmouth, they put out a rape guideline, like, and, they, and it was protected, and that's, like, horrible. Yeah. And as a woman on 
that campus, I would feel threatened. But you still have your freedom. Right, but they still have that freedom. But I don't have that freedom. Right, and you, you know, you have to remember with freedom of speech, like, it's, it becomes a fine line. When you start restricting one type of speech, then that leads to restrictions of other types exactly. of speech. And it becomes a slippery slope. And so, you know, basically, we have a deal which is, you know, if if you know if it's not one of those categories of speech that's not protected, if you don't like it and you don't want to hear it, then, you know, tune it out and yeah. and that's I what mean, it comes you know and no, like that even if your classmates are calling be, you the n-word that may be hard for some people but you know at the same time we we want to be careful about what kinds of speech we restrict in this country especially under the first amendment yeah. because too easily we turn into a situation where journalists are getting a hundred lashes for printing news articles yeah. like you see in other countries where free speech is not protected no i'm with listen and especially listen if you think i'm an n-word let me know so i can know where i stand <laughs> so you rather I'm, them tell yeah, I'm not with this whole passive aggressive liberal racist white Say it to my face. Where Oh, I'm progressive. Mm, did you like fried chicken, Stanley? No, don't well, give me that crap. Well, speaking of progressive, we have to wrap up the conversation, but I want to give the panel a chance to answer this last and final question. Where do we go and how can we get to post-racism America? Will you this- don't. Well, go ahead. Well, I mean, who wants to go first? You don't. Barack Obama's president. Everyone said it was post-racial. It's not. It's too deeply ingrained, and nobody wants to talk about it. Let me correct that. White folks don't want to talk about it. They just throw the blame back to black people. So it's not going to happen. And uh, Well, I kind of disagree. I think that the way we get – I mean uh- – I don't know if it, I don't think we'll ever get to a point where we have a completely post-racial society. I think that would be to think that that would happen is wishful thinking for sure. And on that point, I'll agree with Stanley. But I think that there's two things that can be done. One is deal with the systemic and institutionalized racism because that perpetuates throughout the whole system, and that's what's creating our bigger problems. Our biggest problems is not being created by a bunch of white boys on a bus singing. N-word, N-word, N-word. Our problems are being created by systematic racism within our criminal justice system, within our other structural things that we have that creates income inequality, uh, lack of housing, and, you know, all those other issues that we've talked about. And the... But in the short term, what can you do as an individual? Talk to your friends about race. Have the hard conversations. Don't be afraid to sit down, you know, your black people with your white friends or white people with your black friends and have a serious face-to-face conversation that starts off with nothing that we say here is meant to offend, but let's have this serious conversation about race and racial issues and ask your black friends, if you're white, what offends them about things that you do or say and, you know, vice versa, because that's how we get from where where we are to where we want to be. Right, and I, I thank you so much for that, guys. I do want to just say there's one thing that I find a little contrary from what Alyssa just said, and that's the fact that the racist speech that was said on that frat bus wasn't necessarily the problem that we should be focused on. I disagree because think about it. Who's going to be hired to work at the banks? Who's going to be hired to work as an elected official and as in, in our Congress? And who's going to be hired to, you know, who are the people that are going to become the employers? And how is this going to affect people? How is it going to affect someone who can easily say the N-word in front of a camera when it comes to, let's say that he gets a job in, working at a bank and all of a sudden a black person asks for a loan to start a business. Like, yeah, I mean, be a black person in the bank. Right. Well, <laughs> 
I don't know about that chant. But the thing is, I think that it starts very small and it starts with us and it starts towards our mentalities, towards people of color and people who happen to be different of us. And that is what leads to the systematic institutionalized racism. It's not just this foreign thing. It's the people behind the institutions. And look at it. These are the people behind the institutions. So I think that Alyssa was right when she said it's time to have the discussion. It's time to talk about race and be upfront about it. You know what? Maybe Stanley's right. Maybe it was good that we heard these frat boys using the N-word. Maybe they'll be educated. Maybe they'll take some time to talk to someone of color about why this was so offensive. Maybe someone will sit down with them and say, you know what? What you did was wrong, but I forgive you. But let me educate you. Let me inform you. I do I am very optimistic, and I do think that we are getting to that place. It has been a long, hard, and tedious journey, but progression is being made, and I'm glad that video came out. Um, On that note, we have to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're coming back to the News Roundup right here on Let Your Voice Be Heard. I thought you were playing. I go hard in that motherfucking paint. That was some waka flaka. I'm a G6. Nah, nah, no G6. No G6. Leave it stinking. What the heck you thinking? Well, I need $60 million to buy my plane, Stanley. Waka flaka flame. Selena. Oh. Selena is watching twerk videos on Instagram (laughs) in the studio. You need to stop it. We are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard. She's watching Miley Cyrus. Yep, on 90.3 FM, WHCR, the voice of Harlem. And if you are just tuning in, this is Stanley Fritz with Selena Hill and Alyssa Fuchs. And we were just talking about the fraternity who said there would never be an N-word in their fraternity, S-A-E. We talked about waka flaka a flame using the n-word and of course trinidad james who apparently knows how to read and write what a surprise we are now here at the news roundup the segment where we talk about our favorite news stories throughout the week things that made you laugh cry flip a table or maybe just ask for 65 million dollars so you can get a jet to pray for people i don't know no, it's spread the gospel across yeah, the spread world the gospel. Right. and if you want to call in and participate you can by calling our number 212-650-6903 Hit them, Melissa. You know, I'm not religious, but from a religious perspective, yeah. how I read the teaching of Jesus, I think he would be not, Jesus wouldn't be very happy about this. No. Jesus would say, you get yourself a hoopty car, and that's how you ride around preaching the gospel, because you're supposed to, you know, take all that extra money that your church is getting, and mm-hmm. you're supposed to give it to poor people and help put food in the mouths of those people that are not as fortunate as others. You're not supposed to take $60 million and go buy a jet. And ca- I- in case you guys are wondering what's going on, the buffoon, Uncle Tom, known as Creflo Dollar, put up a GoFundMe account to raise $65 million to get a G650 jet so that he could fly across the land and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for those of you who do not know, I loathe Creflo Dollar and all the other pulpit pimps who go to these churches and they pimp out black people who are poor and say, if you want to go to heaven, give me 10% of your income so you can't pay your rent or your light bill or your gas bill or to buy healthy foods, but God will love you. And then they buy Mercedes-Benzes and mansions and houses and they beat up their daughters and then deny it and say the devil is trying to shut them down. I'm not with you dirty, filthy pastors. You will all burn in hell. Selena? Well, from a religious perspective, I will say this. Um, paying tithes is definitely in the Bible and I do pay my tithes so and that's ten. only and that's only 10%. But so let slavery. me... Well, I mean, I I do understand that, but I mean, I'm just thinking of modern terms. I'm not thinking about how people justify slavery mm-hmm. with the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say this: it was it, it's it's offensive and it's disturbing that the fact that you have 
a, a pastor who has so many congregants and so many people that look up to him and him to be so shameless about it. Like he put it on GoFundMe and he was like, and he, and he had a, a, a description. He was like, it was very straightforward. It's like, please give me this money so we can fund it. And I think he even listed some of the details of the G6. So he was like, yes, it's, it's a luxurious jet. It has all of these features. It's high maintenance. And then he talked about why he's, why his other private plane mm-hmm. is not working anymore. And Wait, his he wife has a private plane. No, yeah, yeah. His wife and his daughter almost, um, cra- I think they crashed in it and they almost died or, or they could have gotten hurt. And that's why he said that he needs this um, new plane. But wasn't Jesus protecting them? Didn't they pray before they no, flew away? He said, no, he said that. He was like, by God's grace, they were saved, but we need a new plane to, you know, so it doesn't happen again. Yeah, I'm sure God was making sure they jet landed safely you and know, not and feeding kids in Africa. And there are so yeah. many good pastors and, you know, good, <gasps> right. uh, good religious figures out there that I think, I mean, it, assuming that you you know, are on board with religion. And even if you're not, you know, you should never disparage other people for believing what they believed. I'm not particularly religious, but I don't disparage others. You know, there are a lot of great religious figures out there that, you know, really, I feel preach the teachings of Jesus and loving thy neighbor and giving back to the community, but and sharing me, the wealth and sharing like the five loaves with um, two fish and five loaves of bread felt 5,000 right, people and turning the other cheek right. and, and not casting the first stone. And yet I think some of that gets, you know, the, the good gets washed under the radar because of people like this. And it's not just him. There's a lot of other people with these big mega churches that ask for a lot of money and they spend the money on themselves and they don't pay taxes. And, you know, they have these huge mega mansion houses. And yet people in their congregation are, are suffering. And I have some very unpleasant stats for you, Selena. Yes. The la- over the last six years, you know who has donated the most money? The poor and middle class donated more money than the rich. I believe that. You know where those donations went to? churches you know churches are non-tax right yes so wh- all right so i have a very big issue with mega churches i'm from east new york and we all know there's a mega church from east new york i won't say the name of it but if you're from east new york brooklyn you know what i'm talking about these mega churches are huge they have starbucks in them their pastors are driving mercedes benzes their children can go to whatever college they want and this in a neighborhood where poverty is at an extreme point you just went to east new york Alyssa, so you I know did. what i'm talking about and then they, you come there on sundays and they literally say in the sermons i've been at a mega church where they said if you want to show your love to god show them what you're wild because god loves money <gasps> And I'm, and like, oh my god and i just want to say that i'm sick and tired of these people who claim who thump on the bible and take advantage of people the conservative republican party does it these black pimps in the church do it and these white folk in the south do it and they make you hate gay people they bash women then they take your money and then a good christian like you selena and the people in your church who are in this for the right reasons look crazy because people like me who bunch you all into one little space despise all of you well, you know I love you, Selena, but it, you know, it reminds me of the George Carlin skit, and obviously George Carlin was famously anti-religion, and I don't occupy the same position as he does in his anti-religion, uh, although I do have some issues with religion in general. But he goes on to talk about, you know, religion has convinced people that there's this person, God, um, who watches the things that you do, and if you don't do certain things, then, you know, there's going to be fire and smoke, and you're going to go to hell. Um, and then he goes on to say, but he loves you. He loves you and he needs money he always needs money he's all powerful all perfect all knowing and all wise but somehow he just can't handle money religion takes in billions of dollars they pay no taxes and they always need a little more right and it's so funny because my pastor constantly says that god does not need your money so like i mean the thing is we have a small church it's very humble and he always says that more than likely he will not 
escalate to that same level because he's not trying to do the same thing. Like it's not, it's about the community. Like he's involved with um, Erica Ford's I am a peacekeaper, always about the community goes to all of the NYPD, um, not the rallies, but the meetings that take place with the community. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And it's like, it, there's such a difference. And I do understand the sentiment. I just say that please do not generalize or a piece of garbage. Right. And just keep that to him. And um, I'm pretty sure that with all of this backlash, um, that's one of the reasons why they took that ad down. And I hope that he does reflect and reconsider himself and why he's using God to make money. There's so many people who love Jesus who are going to give him money. Regardless, to buy the jet. So he can that's why they have people who sell holy water at 12 a.m. on BET and people buy it for $25 because it's going to fix their credit because you have pimps in the industry. Yeah, no, it, it's so true. Um, I actually wanted to segue into another disheartening story that happened this week. I don't know if you saw it, but the, there were these, there was this one girl in Flatbush, Brooklyn, in McDonald's who was jumped brutally attacked by about six other teen girls. The victim was 15, and the other girls who were jumping her were between the ages of 14 and 16. Now, this video was horrendous. The attack was horrible. But you know what was even worse? The dozens of teenagers and adults that stood there and watched. Not one of them called the police. For the most part, you see all of the people cheering. You also see them with their cell phones filming it. And eventually... Some of the workers at the McDonald's did call 911, and eventually two or three teen boys did step in. But they only did that once this 15-year-old victim was on, on the ground, and they continued to stomp her in her head. But, like, who wants to call the NYPD? Because they would have just come in there guns blazing and just been like, who could we shoot today? Well, here, Here is my thing, and you guys are not going to like this, because we come from very different worlds, Selena. That's nothing new. The only new thing about that is cameras. That happened all the time. And you know what? The, the girl's probably going to get in more trouble now since the police and the media are paying attention to it and probably has to leave the school and has to watch her back in her neighborhood. And the reason nobody jumped in was because she was... And this is... I don't agree with this. I'm just telling you what the culture is and what it was like back then. She was holding her own. It took five girls to take her down. So probably if the video didn't come out, she was getting all sorts of props. This happens every day. Oh, no, no. She definitely is getting props, and she is using it as bragging rights on Facebook. A number of people have called her iconic. They, they commended her. They applauded her. I mean, other people said that at the end of the day, most people just feel sorry for you, and you've been humiliated, and they don't understand the mentality of this is something that should be perpetuated and should be uplifted because it shouldn't. It's really, really sad. And there were adults around them who could have took action sooner before she was on the ground limpless. Well, let me ask you, Stanley, do you think that a big reason why nobody called the NYPD because there's no relationship between the community no, and the New York City Police Department? No, that has nothing to do with it at all. I'll tell you the no. truth right now. You shoot the fair one. If you're getting jumped, you're getting jumped. And if people don't have your back, damn, that's messed up. And if you have somebody nice enough there, they might not let you get killed. But they're going to let it go because you don't know who's in that crowd. You don't know what they have. I went to a party Friday night. It was a Greek party, and some bloods got in the party, and they started calling. And I had to go to my girlfriend like, yo, get out of here because I understood the culture, and she didn't. No, Stanley is absolutely right. The the victim refused to cooperate with police officers and quote-unquote snitch. To, to get the other girls who beat her up in trouble. Like, that is the, that is absolutely right. That is the case in this scenario. And it's horrendous, and it's very, very sad. Um, Commissioner Bill Bratton, as well as Mayor Bill de Blasio, have both spoken out against it and are taking steps to 
um, sort of offer some type of reform and relief. But the bigger question comes in where why is this perpetuating? Why is this happening generations and decades in the same working class communities predominated by people of color? Why aren't people stepping in? They're just, I mean... This is, it happened right after school. I'm pretty sure a lot of the teens show this aggression, show this violence because they either learned, they, it's learned somewhere, but I feel like the institutions are failing the teens. Obviously, some of them don't even have parents, so you can't rely on that. But what about the people who are trained and who are paid to work with them every single day? Why are they ignoring the red flags? They're not ignoring it. You can't, if it's, a, if it's a community lifestyle, if it's a culture, to be aggressive in the fight, that's what it is. I grew up in Eastern Brooklyn and Brownsville we fought we brawled that's what happened what are you going to do as a teacher when you go outside and there's 50 bloods outside waiting for a kid well it what comes it down to having to change the culture and part of that is having to deal with the issue of income inequality yeah and yeah and education is, but that's guys, true we do have to close this segment out even though we didn't get a chance to talk about Dame Dash oh um, yes 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 if you want to hear about Dame Dash follow me on Twitter and you can see the <laughs> argument I have with Selena and I'm publishing a post about it later today we'll oh, be bye. right back talking about student loans Montana from Migos. It is possibly the worst hip hop song of all time, so I love it. We are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM, WHCR, the voice of Harlem. And if you are just tuning in, this is Stanley Fritz, Selena Hill, and Alyssa Fuchs. We finished up our news roundup where we talked about Creflo Dollar asking for $65 million for a G5 650 jet to pray. And we also <laughs> talked about the girl who got turned up and jumped in front of McDonald's and had it recorded and now thinks she's a celebrity. Yeah, we didn't get does. to talk about much else because we were arguing about those things. But we are now back and we are talking about the student aid bill of rights and in case you guys have no idea what i'm talking about i have some notes i'm going to read to you so in a speech earlier this week at georgia tech where there were reportedly over 10,000 students president obama announced that he was implementing a student bill of rights and he was hoping that this could do a couple of things help make it easier for students to pay their loans not let loan companies take advantage of them but he was not going to lower the interest rate because that would make too much sense but anyways we're going, to, we're going to be talking about what this Bill of Rights is, how it affects people who have student loan debt, taking calls from people who want to voice their opinions, and we're going to be having an amazing guest to help us with this conversation. So, if you guys have student loans, I suggest you sign up for this organization. It is called studentdebtcrisis.org. And we have from that organization Natalie Abrams, the executive director. And she, she is an education advocate working towards solutions that provide an affordable, accessible, quality education for all students. In 2011, she started Occupy Colleges as a response to the economic injustices facing students, including high tuition increases and lack of financial aid. She also organized one of the largest college protests since the 1970s before she formed StudentDebtCrisis.org. And I would just like to say that I am also a supporter or former supporter of Occupy Colleges because it's Student Debt Crisis, crisis Now. So I'm very happy to have her on the air today. And once again, guys, if I was talking too fast, it is Miss Natalia Abrams, the executive director of Student Debt Crisis. Natalia, can you pay my loans? <laughs> Hi, Natalia. Hi, Stanley. Hi, Selena. Hi, Alyssa. Thanks so much for having me. Thank, Thank you. you. And if I could pay your loans and everyone's loans tomorrow, I would. But I need my loans paid. We can't do that. But, you know, we're working really hard to just fundamentally change the way we pay for higher education in this country. No, you're absolutely and, right. You know, we believe that ultimately we need free higher public education and we need to forgive the loans. No. That's ultimately, that's the goal. But 
in the meantime, we are willing to work with the administration and any legislators that will do what we kind of call band-aid measures Mm -hmm. in the middle of fighting for the bigger reforms. If we can help a borrower save $5 tomorrow, we will help support that while fighting for the longer, you know, for the long game. So it's both. This is why I open all of your emails. That's why. Um, so quick question. And more than likely, because, you know, Occupy had a lot of people coming in there, so it's very likely that, you know, you wouldn't have seen me anyway. But I was very active um, during the Occupy movement. I used to work with Occupy Sustainability. Did you ever, did you spend any time at Zakati Park? No. Well, yes. I live in Los Angeles, so I was part of Occupy LA and really started Occupy Colleges on October 2nd, so pretty soon after the movement started. But I visited Zuccotti a couple times when I went to New York to meet fellow occupiers. Well, fellow occupier, it's good to have you on the line. I'm glad that we are changing the world in our own way, and I'm still working on the environment, so yay. So, Natalia, let's get down to the nitty-gritty of the Student Aid Bill of Rights, and I know a lot of people are listening, and Sally Mae is on hold right now trying to get the money from them. <laughs> so... One of the first things that the president says he wants to do is create a centralized website that will list all the people who own your loans now and want your money and also make it easier for you to figure out how to pay them at a reasonable time. So I can tell you that I remember back in 2010 when I first graduated, I thought I had consolidated all of my loans and I was only going to have to pay $33 a month. And I was excited because I was I was making so little money that $33 was pretty much the only point I could afford to pay. Three months later, I got a call from Sally Bay, and she said, oh, that was only one loan. You had to pay us $600 a month. And I said, I can't afford that because I had to pay rent. And they go, well, skip rent and pay us. Yeah. And, and they said the reason that happened was because I had only consolidated one loan, and there were other loans I had not known about. Can you talk about, so, like, does this new piece in his Bill of Rights, does that actually address this issue in particular? So we're this is really a framework, and we're – going to see more specifics coming out, but I think the simple answer is it's going to. He, President Obama and the White House and some of our legislators are starting to realize just how wrong the student loan system is, that you're having Sally May tell you to skip rent. We need basic consumer protections for student loans, and that's one of the big things he talked about for the Bill of Rights, is that now the Department of Education Um, is going to get some help from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, from the Department of Treasury, from the IRS, to clean up this system and to make it so the same consumer protections they have for mortgages and for credit cards are going to apply to student loans as well. So I don't think this is going to happen overnight, but this is the direction we're going into. And the, the mere fact that he's calling it Bill of Rights and the word rights is he's lending, he's leading us into the fact that higher education is a right for everyone. And I feel like that's the biggest shift in just the way he's talking about it. He's changing the narrative. And we believe that higher education is a civil right or a human right. And we're starting to see some of our legislators in the White House talk in that manner. Um, you know, they are going to put pressure on these lenders to, you know, apply your interest to the highest interest loan instead of the lowest to let you know about your repayment program, to let you know that you're getting into default, all the stuff that they have not been doing because, as you feel and a lot of people feel, Sally Mae doesn't care about you, and we got to change that. Thank you very much. Sally Mae tweets me, though. She DM'd me once. Stop it. No, I'm serious. She what did she send you? Some she goes, photos? Hey, Stanley, you're late on your student loans. What's going on? Are you serious? Yes, and I thought that was very creepy. <laughs> but- yeah. They, they send birthday cards. They'll wish you happy birthday. You know, they try to be your friend, but, you know, a joke we have in our office is, 
Sally Mae is, you know, not the sweet farmer's daughter that you think it is. Oh, no, 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 she's not. And I had so many friends who got to do extra stuff with her, I could only pay for classes. But I, I digress. Let's get back to the questioning because that is important. And and you seem like you're very supportive, at least with the framework of the Student Aid Bill of Rights. But is it something that we can really hang our hat on as a difference maker for students? Yes. I And the reason being is that I've been in this student debt game or educational advocate for six years. And this is by, you know, we're we're seeing so much more come out of our legislators in the White House than ever before. So I think there's a sense of thanking them and having some gratitude so they don't go away while we're fighting for stronger. So it's not that we're settling with this, and I want that to be very clear. This can be better. We need to fight for stronger reforms. But the fact that this is, you know, we're finally seeing and hearing them speak the way that advocates themselves speak, it is a huge step in the right direction. And that's a really good point. And what I want to ask you is because one of the reasons for the for the um, Bill of Rights is to protect students from some of the ways that these companies would take advantage of them and like you know force them into default. Could you you know as someone who's been advocating this for quite some time now, could you talk about that for us? Explain to listeners. Yeah. So you know the lenders are really unscrupulous. You can pay your payment on time. They'll claim they didn't get the payment. They'll apply your payments to the lowest interest loans, not the highest. They won't inform you about any income-based repayment, which they're directed to, but they haven't been doing so. Um, they won't tell you you're getting close to default. And then if you're in default, meaning you have not paid your student loans, you can't go bankrupt, so you're in this kind of no-man's land, then they'll harass you. I mean, I've had borrowers tell me that they've gotten over 100 calls in a short amount of time from Sally Mae or their collection agency calling them, calling their brother, calling their brother's sister's wife. I mean, these are some basic human decency protections that should be applied to all Americans. And somehow student loans have been this negatively affected class. And that's what the president's trying to change. Um, and he's listening. And, he's, and it's our job on the left to continue to push him further I than am, this. But we have his ear, and that's important. I am all for that. So, guys, if you were just tuning in, we are talking about the Student Aid Bill of Rights with Mrs. Natalia Abrams from Student Debt Crisis. And if you want to call in, the number is 212-650-6903. And Alyssa has a question. Uh, it's more of a comment than a question, but, you know, I... I'm in the boat where I have student loans, but my student loans are from grad school. They're from going to law school. Now, first things first, and something that Stanley mentioned earlier about consolidation of loans, which is I actually went to go try and consolidate my loans because I have four different loans, two graduate plus loans and two Stafford subsidized loans. And I found out that when I went to go consolidate, had I have done so, I would have lost the benefit of the lower interest rate that I was going to have on two of the loans. Uh, and so if, it really, for me at this point, wasn't worth it. Now, there are certain things that are in place, like student loan forgiveness for public interest and other types of things like that. But I find myself in a position where I make the I'm on income based loan repayment and, you know, I make the payments every month, but the interest keeps growing and growing and growing. So I actually end up owing more money, despite that I fact I'm that I'm paying and I feel no relief. Um, and I also feel like I don't have an incentive to pay them any more than that because of the fact that, you know, after 20 years, allegedly, the loans are supposed to go to way. My biggest issue is the fact that, you know, American students are shouldering the budget because we don't, Republicans don't want to raise taxes on people who can afford to have a tax raise. So instead, let's put high interest rates on student loans. But that, now that I gave some background into myself and my situation, the question for Natalia is, 
does this student bill of rights only affect student loans for people who took out the loans to go to undergrad institutions or would this give relief also to people who went to law school med school other types of graduate schools and have incurred significant debt in that realm so this applies to all um, borrowers and that's why we like it it's not so a lot of reforms that have come out in the past few years have applied to new students and not even existing students or undergraduate students and not grad students this applies to all students because it's helping you navigate with your lender um, and have, you know, like I said before, basic consumer protections, be very clear on what your repayment programs are. And, you know, you mentioned consolidation. It works for a few people, but often most of the people I've talked to that have consolidated you will consolidate into a private loan. You won't be eligible for the public. Where if you, you know, go from a federal loan to a private loan consolidation, you can't get IBR. You can't get public service loan forgiveness. So you need to be very careful of what you choose, and it's not clear. Um, we had a great meeting with Senator Warren years ago, and she said, you know, things are so confusing. You've got to ask yourself, is that done on purpose? And the student loan system is purposely confusing, so it's very easy to get into the default. It's very easy to get into trouble. And so this is going to simplify the process so you really know what the best option is available to you. Right. Um, thank you so much for that, Natalia, and we appreciate you coming on the show. Um, I have a question because even though I'm a supporter and I back um, the Student Aid Bill of Rights and everything. She doesn't have any student loan debt. Oh, stop. Why did you say that? But full disclosure, <laughs> I don't have any student loan debt because I went to a state school and I got scholarships. So did I. And I was able to pay off my loans um, fairly quickly. Um, so besides that, so the question I had is, you know, why are so many conservatives bashing in? I mean, it seems like a good thing. It seems like it makes sense and then yet i'm hearing them say like okay but it's a bailout or other people saying like it's just a band-aid can you like i guess respond to that that sort of sentiment yeah so you know i could agree that it's a, a little bit of a band-aid but i always like to say band-aids stop the bleeding so i don't really see what's wrong with band-aids um, especially when we're fighting for larger reforms and i've heard the same things you've heard fox news has called this a bailout um you know I wish, right? You know, I wish there was much more of a bailout for students. It, it's really hard to speak for why they don't want to be for something like this. And it feels a bit that, you know, it's just what's been going on in our kind of broken system that whatever the president says, they go against it, no matter what it is. And I hope that they really see that this is not the right strategy to take come 2016, because there's 40 million student loan borrowers, and that's just the borrowers themselves. Then they have children and parents and grandparents, and we could argue that almost 200 million people are affected in some way or another by student loan debt. That's two-thirds of the country. So they better wake up because they're going to lose come next year and beyond if they don't start listening to the American people and what they need and want. Absolutely agree with that. Absolutely. I actually feel that students are pawns in this political game that we're playing because of the fact that, like, for example, the bill that Elizabeth Warren proposed said, let's lend money to students at the same rate we lend money to banks. And let's make that retroactive to the students that already have loans in order to reduce the burden. Because what a lot of people don't realize is the high student debt burden that students are feeling stops them from getting married, from buying homes, from starting families, from putting money back into the economy, and it actually holds the economy back. Um, and a part of the pushback to that was in order to do that kind of thing, 
taxes were going to have to be raised because right now student loan debt that gets paid back fills a large hole in the budget. And so without that money being paid back by students, if that amount is reduced, then the question becomes, how do we pay for these things? Because now we have a gap in the budget. And obviously politics came into play. But the question here uh, for our guest is, which is this student bill of rights proposal, obviously the president's put forth, is this something he's going to do by executive action? Is this something he's proposing to Congress that he would need to get passed? Because as you just pointed out, Congress isn't really willing to work with him on anything. Um, so, I mean, what's the likelihood of this actually succeeding and giving relief to the, the two thirds of Americans that have de debt? So as I said before, this is a framework. This isn't actually something that needs to be passed. They're going to set up, you know, a new website, as Stanley mentioned. There's some things that the White House is just going to do. There's other things in terms of exploring better ways to help borrowers that we're going to need to see Congress act, you know, refinancing student loans, lowering the interest rate, you know, especially it never made sense to me why you pay more interest as a graduate student versus less. Um, you know, so we are going to be Congress act on some of that, but we will see the White House just create these new programs as well. So it's a bit, it's a bit of a mixed bag, and it's our job as advocates, it's your job as listeners and as Americans to call all of your legislators and tell them to support the Bill of Rights, to tell them your student loan story. We have uh, testimonials on our website, which we collect and send to members of Congress to let them know, hey, this is the real face to what's going on with this crisis, and you need to listen. And, you know, like your radio station, let your voice be heard. It's very important that we tell people, what, our legislators, what's going on so we can help shift what's going on in our country with student loans. Yeah, thank you. you. You know, you are speaking a language. I appreciate that. Natalia, we do have to go on a quick break. Just hold on for one second. Guys, if you're tuning in, give us 30 seconds. We'll be right back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard. WHCR 90.3 FM, New York. I go looking for you with Haitians. I stay smoking on good Jamaican. From different races. You get money, they started hating. I woke up in a new Bugatti. I woke up in a new Bugatti. I woke up in a new This is the sound of someone correctly installing a car seat. And this is the sound of someone incorrectly installing a car seat. Correctly? Incorrectly. Hear the difference? No? That's because installing a car seat incorrectly is terribly easy. So much so, 75% of adults install them wrong. For simple instructions on how to get it right, visit buckleupforlife.org. Ah, perfectly executed. Brought to you by Cohen Children's Medical Center. An economic equality of the sexes. You wake up, 
WHCR 90.3 FM, New York. I woke up drunk. Uh, 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 oh, we God. are back on Let Your Voice did Be Heard you? on 90.3 <laughs> FM WHCR, The Voice of Harlem. I did not. I only you didn't make up with a hangover? I glasses of whiskey last night. Hangover? And if you are just tuning in, this is Stanley Fritz, Selena Hill, and Alyssa Fuchs, and we are talking about the student loan crisis and President Obama's student aid bill of rights with Natalia Abrams. If you want to call in, the number is 212-650-6903, or you can tweet us at BeHeard underscore radio because we got all sorts of tweets and we want it. Alyssa has a comment she wants to share, so yeah. I'm yeah, we're actually getting a really great comment on Politically Preposterous right now, and if we get any other comments, definitely try and read them out. And if you have a comment, definitely hit the page, tell us what you're thinking, or tweet at BeHeard underscore radio. But uh, Dan Whitaker says, we bail out banks because they stuff money into the pockets of congressmen. Students don't have any money to buy a congressman. Mm, right. Makes perfect sense. Right on the money with that last comment. And I want to encourage people to also tweet us at BeHeard underscore radio. Yes, do that. So, Natalia, I want to switch gears a little bit. We talked about the Bill of Rights and kind of, like, mentioned some of the things that it's trying to protect, but a lot of people have said it does not go far enough. And I know you've also said it is kind of like, you know, it's a good first step, but there's a lot more things to do. In a perfect world, what kind of legislation would we be looking at to help students suffering from the loads of $1.3 trillion of debt? So, in a perfect world... We would join the ranks of Germany and Chile and Denmark, and we would provide free higher public education in our country. And then it would make zero sense that people were suffering with student loans, and we would forgive the the existing student loans that people had. So we would finally say that education is a basic human right, and we would, you know, become a good Western country that we should be. Um, That's a perfect world. That, I feel, is a little bit down the line. So simple steps that we can add to this Bill of Rights is restoring bankruptcy protections for private loans as, as a start. As what does that mean? Loans. What does what mean? Bankruptcy, bankruptcy protection for student loans. So right now you can't go bankrupt on your student loan. Um, there's some small cases of extreme disability, um, but it's very hard to get a discharge of your student loan. So just like credit cards or homes where you can foreclose on them, it's you know a simple tenet of even capitalism that you can restart and you can go bankrupt on your debt. You're not able to do that on your student loan. Oh. So if you get into a lot of trouble, you go into default and you get harassed by your lender. Wow. Okay. So um, go ahead. So, now that I learned that, I didn't know that. What were the other things that we can do, the realistic things you said, or like the, yeah, the short-term Yeah, so refinancing, things? again, you know, you can refinance your house. You can refinance your car. Um, sometimes you can even call your credit card company and get a lower APR interest rate. You can't do that with your student loans. Uh, there's a few, but they ask you to consolidate. But you should be able, you know, my student loan is at 6.8%. A new federal student loan is around 4.2, Why can't I take advantage of that new rate? And that Elizabeth Warren had a bill last year that got very close. It was two votes from passing to allow borrowers to refinance their loans. Why the, the Republicans won't go for that when it's a very simple, moderate measure is beyond me. Um, 
so it's those kind of, you know, I guess band-aids are, you know, interim solutions that can really help borrowers save, you know, thousands of dollars a month, I'm sorry, thousands of dollars a year on their student loans while we're figuring out how to make education free and how to forgive all the loans. So we were talking about the Student Loan Bill of Rights, and you gave us a couple of options that we can do that would be a little bit stronger than the Bill of Rights. But now I, we have a lot of people who've been very excited about this segment, especially when they found out that you were coming, you were calling in. And I have one caller who left a comment on our website um, just expressing her feelings about the Bill of Rights. I wanted to read it to you and get your feedback. So I'm not going to say her name, but she says, this Bill of Rights makes me so angry. Want real change? Address the frankly abhorrent practices of lending at 11% interest rates on private loans and then not providing graduates a way of restructuring. One of my loans is 10.75%. It should be illegal. Even federal loans of 6.5% interest rate, that is, it's ridiculous. That's 3% more than the government agencies give mortgages out for. I think homebuyers home are in a better position to tackle repayment than an unemployed graduate. But hey, who am I to make these spe speculations? And she says that she feels like the student loan crisis is just like the housing bubble where there's so much debt and there's no escape route from that debt that people are investing in the debt so that they can make money off of students and no one is doing anything and she doesn't see a way out. Well, she's absolutely right except for the point of no one's doing anything because I do, like I said before, I've been in this for a long time and you know people are doing much more than they were doing, say, when I was even running Occupy Colleges. But she's right. It's criminal that... She's being charged 11% on her private loan. And I think with this Bill of Rights, they're starting to look into this. This is why they're working with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. This is why they're working with Treasury. They are going to be cracking down not just on the federal loan services, but the private contractors that are protected. Because all of the student loans are still protected by the federal government in the terms of bankruptcy. They will... You know, They'll always recruit their their money. So they are going to look at this. But I see how so many people feel deterred because they've been, you know, pardon my friend, screwed over by their lenders. And they don't have a lot of faith in the system and what's going on. But they need to keep speaking up. We need to keep speaking about stories. Everyone should be borrowing, like Elizabeth Warren said, it was a bank borrow until we can get to free. But I, I we got to we got to take the small wins when we get them, and it doesn't mean we stop working. So right. we need to realize that, hey, the President of the United States spent an entire speech talking about student loan debt. That's huge for the student debt crisis. He's acknowledging it. He's using his bully pulpit to inform citizens that this is a big issue. To me, that is a win, and I'm going to take it. Definitely. Um, just to add on to that, so, I mean, this – it is definitely outrageous that someone could pay 11% on um, their loan. But I'm like, whose bright idea was this? Like, how did this even come about? Can you talk about some of, like, the history of how we went from, at one point, um, state-level colleges and city colleges being free to now you're paying 11% on a loan to go to college? How did that happen? Well, so much of that has happened because of state disinvestment. We spend less in the states, less per student nowadays than we ever have done before. So we're just pulling up, you know, the state money and we're putting the ownership on the backs of students, on the poorest, you know, group of people versus the state governments to pay for college. And so the cost of tuition has skyrocketed. Um, you know, I'm from California where we had the Clark Kerr California Master Plan where 
school was free. And, you know, the 50s, 60s, uh, you could get a higher education for free. And the state has pulled out so much money, and it's risen tuition, and now we're in the situation that we're in. And it has to change, and we have to lower, you know, if we're not talking free, we have to lower tuition, we have to lower the percentage of loans, and the president talked about that this year, too, with his two-year community college initiative, uh, saying that these first two years, you know, that's another road to free. It's not perfect. We need all four or eight years to be free. But if we can get those first two years free and also put, you know, the screws on the for-profit colleges that are charging $30,000 for what you can get at a community college, you know, that's another whole segment to talk about the unscrupulous practices of the for-profit colleges. Absolutely. And speaking of for-profit colleges, one of those that's been in the news recently is the Corinthian College. And it's been in the news because of the fact that uh, some of the students who have gone to Corinthian and organized in part by Rolling Jubilee, which is an offshoot of Occupy Wall Street, uh, have decided that essentially they're going to go on a debt strike, that they're not going to pay back those the debt that they owed, and especially because of the fact that they feel like they were jilted by Corinthian College as a for-profit college. Now, Rolling Jubilee has said many, many times that when it comes to their program of buying people's debt and abolishing it, it's very difficult within the realm of uh, federally backed student loans because that's not debt that's available for sale on the open market versus when people take out, you know, just a regular loan through a bank uh, versus a loan through Sally Mae or Navient or like I'm with Great Lakes. Um, But it raises a bigger question about a debt strike. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts, Natalia, which was if students in this country, if the two thirds of students, as you point out that have student loan debt, federally backed student loan debt, just decided tomorrow to actually organize and everybody decided to go on a debt strike. Would that have any effect or would that just be wishful thinking and everybody would screw themselves because they would end up being in default and, you know, ending up screwing up their credit for life? Right. So um, that's a tricky one. I applaud what they're doing at Strike Debt. I think it's wonderful. Um, but they have said themselves that the, the Corinthian 15 were already in default or deferment, so they, you know, didn't go into default to do this. They're just making a stand of what default's like um, for that. It could work. It, you know, we don't recommend it just in the sense that if we don't get critical mass, you, as you just said, you end up screwing yourself over. You end up hurting yourself by going into default. I also think it kind of puts the onus on the students and the borrowers when they have done nothing wrong. So why should they then go into voluntary default and hurt themselves when they've done nothing wrong? But the way it could work, and there was a fantastic alternate article about this months ago, is that if we all signed a petition and we got, you know, 20 million of the 40 million saying, I will go into default, you know, if you don't listen to our demands, and we bonded together like a union and we went into negotiations, I think it could have a drastic effect. But we would need such critical mass for that to actually work that I don't suggest anybody defaulting on their loans tomorrow until we can really get, you know, a movement together around that. And Strike Debt and Rolling Jubilee are working on that, and they're doing a fantastic job. They definitely are. But what I'd like to see in the future is – the, the president in, in D.C. coming out to some of these for-profit colleges, full disclosure, I went to a for-profit college before Old Westbury. I only stayed there for a year but managed to get two associate's degrees, one in criminal justice and in business, and it cost me $60,000. Wow. I didn't know that. Yes. And the school is, I'm, I'm, from what I'm understanding, is on the 
on the verge of being decredited because it was just a, just a ripoff of a school that would send like inner city like people like acceptance letters before they ever applied. I got an acceptance letter and a scholarship for the basketball team. And, <laughs> what? And, yeah, before you applied? Yeah. And, and Are you I, serious? Yes. And like, yeah, I know. It is funny. You can laugh. Um, and I, I thought I was going to the NBA still at the time. Stop. I was gonna be a, a, Do you actually a, play basketball? I used to play. I used to be like halfway decent. Okay. Not really. And, I was on the bench on the basketball team, <laughs> but I thought I was going to be this, the first six-foot center to play in the NBA, even though I couldn't crack my starting five. And I went to this college, and they took this money, and the college was one floor. It was one floor, and they charged us about 26000 a semester, I think it was. Wow. I forget. Yes. Yes. And you just I, didn't I, know I myself, about it. I myself, before I went to UCLA, you know, was in community college. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I kind of was a late glimmer on that. And I uh, thought I wanted to be a chef and was accepted without really applying um, to a $70,000 culinary program, which, thank God, I didn't do. Um, you Where know, were you? The for-profits are, you know, really bad news. And the fact that the federal government, you know, let, gives financial aid for these colleges is a big problem. And that's another step that they could take is taking away the federal financial aid for the for-profits. They can exist if they want to. But when the federal government gives you a loan for, to go to that school, it tells parents, it tells prospective students, hey, this is an okay institution because I'm getting federal government money for it. And it's not. You know, it's, it's definitely a wrong. We're seeing problems with Corinthians. We're seeing problems with ITP Tech. We're seeing problems with Arts Institute. Across the board, you know, the for-profits are starting to crumble. And we need to make sure to let students know that that is not, you know, when you can go to community college and you can go to a state school, there's much better options than going to the for-profit school. You are 100% right. Don't be like me and spend 60000 on a crappy <laughs> school because you thought you were going to the NBA but didn't play a single game. And they told you you can go to law school with an associate's of criminal justice. But I digress. Anyways, Natalia, please let the listeners know how they can learn more information about the work that you do and stay in contact with the student debt crisis. So please go to our website, studentdebtcrisis.org, O-R-G. Um, you can right now sign our petition to support the Student Aid Bill of Rights. So almost 50,000 people have signed since Tuesday. We also love to hear your personal testimonials of your debt story. Um, if the Student Aid Bill of Rights is just not your game, you can also go to Cancel All Student Debt, I believe, dot com. Um, and that is to sign up for student loan forgiveness. So, you know, if you just are, are not okay with the Student Bill of Rights the way we are, and you want to see full-fledged forgiveness, go to cancelallstudentdebt.com. If you want to do both and work with us on the Student Bill of Rights as we're working towards forgiveness, come to our website and, find, and join the 50,000 people and sign the petition. Thank you so much, Natalia. Yes, thank you so great. much for that. So we got to wrap this segment up. And, oh, my goodness, we had a call on the line. I forgot to get to him. So, Barry, I apologize. Um, we would definitely let you get get a call, get your voice in next time. But we do have to wrap this up. And I want to say somewhere out there right now is a child in the Midwest who they want to get out of their neighborhood and their home and they want to go off to college and become the next um, Hillary Clinton or the next Paul Ryan or the next Barack Obama. And it's a kid just like me in East New York who knows that their ticket out of their, their environment is to go off to college. And for every child like that, there is a college which – 
doesn't need to charge as much as they do, but they will. And they'll, they'll gouge them and charge them $60,000 and promise them a dollar in a dream and a guaranteed job. And when financial aid doesn't cover enough of it, they'll say, hey, sign this paper right here. And they'll take out a loan. And those kids will be stifled in their future. Or they'll be slaves to student loan debt because we have not done anything to address it. That's why I appreciate the great work that Natalia is doing. And I appreciate the great work from all the activists and organizers who have been so vocal in trying to get some kind of relief for us in student loan debt. If you don't believe this is a problem, that student loan debt is an issue, you will when the bubble bursts and we are all left wondering why Sally Mae needs a bailout because they damn sure won't give one to Jason or Jackie or Stanley. We'll be right back after this quick break and when we do, we'll be talking about the idiots in Congress or Senate or just Republicans. Iran too. Isn't that the same thing? WHCR 90.3 FM, New York. And we are back, and uh, this is Alyssa Fuchs, and I'm here with the rant, although today it's going to be like a quickie rant. Anyways, I'm really pissed off about this. I know a lot of other people are pissed off about this. If you're pissed off about this, then you're listening to the right segment, because I'm going to tell you why. So last Sunday, while we were on the air, actually, because this started blowing up as soon as we got off the air, Republican Senator Tom Cotton revealed his open letter to the Iranian leaders, and this letter addressed the ongoing negotiations that are going Going on between the U.S., specifically between President Obama and Secretary of State Kerry and other world powers over limiting Iran's nuclear program in exchange for relief from the very, very strict economic sanctions. Forty-six other Republican senators joined this letter. This letter was disgusting, and I'm going to tell you why. This letter warned that even if Iran and the U.S. did reach an agreement, that Congress or a future president could revoke or alter the agreement, especially if the U.S.-Iran deal was not formally approved by Congress. Basically, Republicans are Congress mad over the fact that they think that the president never consults them on anything. We're like, nani nani poo poo, we're going to screw up your negotiations. And that's basically what they did. In fact, not only did they threaten to screw up the negotiations, this letter could potentially start a war. And I'm not even exaggerating on that, because if Iran walks away from the table of this deal and says, you know what, we don't want to deal with you anymore because we don't trust you, then guess what? They're going to close us out of their borders. The centrifuges are probably going to start sprinting. And they are going to make a nuclear bomb. Uh, and so it's really, really important that we come to an agreement with them in order to prevent them from making a nuclear bomb. You know what? For as much as I dislike Reagan, Reagan once said, trust but verify. And if we want to be able to verify that they're actually complying with the limits we set out on them, we can only do that if they trust us enough to let us in the country to do inspections. They're not going to let us do that if they think that people like the Republicans are interfering in deals that are they are coming to with the president. So let me give you a little more background. This letter was signed by 46 other Republican senators. It was also definitely a shot at the president himself, at his administration, at the way he approaches foreign policy, and at the way, in general, foreign policy is made in the U.S. The letter, as far as I'm concerned, was deliberately condescending, and its implication was clear. Republicans were threatening to sabotage any agreement that the U.S. was trying to come to with the with Iran because they don't like the president and they don't like the terms. So why was this letter so significant? Well, one, it was a deliberate deliberate effort by Republicans to sabotage the U.S.-Iran nuclear talks. Um, one of the biggest problems that is currently going on in the negotiations between the U.S. and Iran is trust, right? 
the Iranians have a large reason why they shouldn't trust us going all the way back to the 70s. What a lot of people forget is in the 70s, the Iranians elected a leader. We did not like that leader, and we basically had that leader deposed and instituted somebody into office in their country that we as Americans liked better. That directly led to the Iranian hostage crisis during the 70s and to continues to be a contentious point which creates tensions between the U.S. and Iran today. The countries don't trust each other, and Iran does not trust us, and for what I think is a good reason. Now, one of the biggest problems with this letter is that Republicans in Congress, who largely oppose the talks and have been trying to stop negotiations by imposing new sanctions on Iran, this destroys the trust even further between the two countries and forces Iran to walk away from the table, which, as I already said, could potentially start a war. This is the purpose of the letter. It was to convince Iran's leaders that Obama cannot be trusted, Obama's promises cannot be trusted, and that Republicans will do everything they can to undermine the president, and therefore the U.S. cannot be trusted to uphold its end of the bargain, and uh, thus Iran should quit the talks, walk away from the table. Secondly, this is an unprecedented breach of protocol in how things are supposed to be done and may even be a violation of the law, which I'm going to get into in just a second. Constitutional law, Articles 1, 2, and 3 of the Constitution, which lay out which branches are responsible for taking certain actions, set strict limits and important limits on Congress's involvement in foreign policy. We once had a time back in the 17 and 1800s where individual U.S. citizens would go try and negotiate with foreign governments. This did not work out with, uh, for us at all. In fact, this was a main reason why the Articles of Confederation failed and we ended up with a constitution instead. Cotton's letter that was signed by these 46 senators by interfering with the president's foreign policy went well beyond the limits of what's allowed by the Constitution and is very easily and can very easily be seen as unconstitutional. In addition, as I already mentioned, the letter also seems that it may violate a law that's known as the Logan Act. Now, this law goes back to the 1700s. It was passed because of the fact that independent citizens used to fly to other countries and attempt to negotiate with them, and it never worked out with us. And the Logan Act forbids America from interfering in U.S. policy. The law was originally passed when a state legislator sent a letter to France in 1798, which undermined the U.S. policy towards France. In fact, technically, violating the Logan Act is a felony, although it's highly unlikely that Tom Cotton and these 47 senators will be prosecuted under the Logan Act because, one, prosecutions under the Logan Act are very rare, and because, two, the Department of Justice, Eric Holder, would have to be the one prosecuting, or Loretta Lynch, which obviously is an even bigger problem because Loretta Lynch needs to be confirmed by the Senate. So if she was to say, yeah, I'm going to prosecute you under the Logan Act, should I get, nom you know, should you approve my nomination, then there's no way they would approve her nomination. So it sets up all these other political problems. Um, but the Logan Act at its core is meant to enforce the idea that the president is in charge of foreign policy. It's not supposed to be like domestic legislation where Obama and Congress are fighting it out. Um, but obviously, through this letter, Republicans are trying to change that. They're trying to undermine the very premise of how U.S. foreign policy is supposed to work in this country. And the letter actually goes way beyond the articulated limits of Congress's role in foreign power because it doesn't just undermine the Iran talks, but it undermines the very foundation of how pol foreign policy in the U.S. is made. By taking this extreme step, Cotton and the Cotton 47, it's almost certainly, certainly, certainly going to polarize the politics of this deal itself, and it's going to make them more partisan in their nature, which they 
weren't or they sort of were, but it was a little more diffused. Um, so what is it that Tom Cotton and other Republicans wanted by this? Well, obviously, they're opposed to any deal whatsoever between the U.S. and Iran, and we know what they want. They want to sabotage the deal because it potentially could start a war. And you may be asking yourselves, why do they want a war? Well, it all goes back to money because a lot of the Republicans who signed that letter, they are invested in war profiteering, private corporations that make tanks and make military equipment and have contracts with the U.S. government. And so guess what? If we get involved in another war and we have to take our tax money and now use it to spend on the military, that tax money goes to private war contractors. And guess whose pockets get lined by that money? Theirs. In fact, Cotton has actually been very clear in the past that he does not want talks to fail, no matter that he does want the talks to fail, I'm sorry, no matter what the terms are, because he believes the only appropriate solution to Iran's nuclear program is an outright regime change. Now, as I just mentioned, an outright regime change would almost certainly require a war, which would in turn line his pockets. Now, What's the blowback? Cotton's letter has been extremely polarizing. So far, seven Republican senators have come out against it, saying that it went too far. In the case of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee Chairman Bart Carker, he warned that it could potentially backfire and make passing any new sanctions more, more difficult because Democrats who were once in favor of potentially working with Republicans to pass more sanctions are now siding with the president and do not want to be involved with Republicans. And so there went the Republican so-called veto-proof majority that they were hoping for if they wanted to override the Iran deal. In, a, in addition, funny enough, Cotton's letter actually explained the Constitution wrong. Um, I'm not going to go into detail about that, but it, it talked about how a treaty is passed, and he said that it needed to be approved by the Senate, when in fact it had to be just passed with the advice and consent of the Senate. It's two, What he wrote and how it actually works are two different things. So funny enough, he's writing a letter teaching the Iranians about the Constitution, and he gets things about the Constitution completely incorrect. Uh, Republicans are bringing these tactics in. They're using them to try and undermine the president's legislative agenda, um, both at home and at abroad. They're overtly sabotaging not just Iran's, the Iran policy, but also this enshrined constitutional authority that the president is supposed to have. It's disrespectful, it's disingenuous, it's dangerous, and it's reckless. It's and it's meant to embarrass the president, and it could lead to a war. So, you know, I hope, I really hope that they're going to face a lot of political backlash because already from both sides of the right. aisle, they're they're facing some. And I hope it only cont yeah. continues. I mean, this is just plain wrong. It was wrong and it was stupid. And even the president said, I'm embarrassed for them. I mean, it's like you said, it's nearly unprecedented. I mean, but then again, shouldn't we expect these dramatic measures, irrational moves from Republicans? I mean, it reminds me of when Mitt Romney kept talking during that debate and President Obama was like, like, please proceed off the cliff. Well, I think that's sort of where we're at now. Yeah, you know, just Republic, jump. Just, you know, continue to proceed off your cliff. We'll thank please. you. We'll thank you in 2016. Please just On jump. On that note, we um, have. Yeah, we are going to wrap it up and say goodbye. But I want to let everyone know I'm not going to be here next Sunday because I will be waking up in Paris. God willing. I'm so excited about that. So we oui, oui, au revoir. Um, but Stanley and the rest of the team will be here, so continue tuning in it'll, next Sunday. It'll be the heathen show, let's go. <laughs> Sounds good to me. All right. <laughs>